0: Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 46, Robert Leonard, Forensic Linguistics. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Rob Leonard. Rob is professor of linguistics at Hofstra University, where he is director of the graduate program in forensic linguistics. Rob also frequently serves as a forensic expert on linguistic issues. Our podcast today features Rob's new article, Forensic Linguistics, Applying the Science of Linguistics to Issues of the Law, which was co-authored with Julianne Ford and Tanya Christensen. It was recently published in the Hofstra Law Review. In it, Rob discusses the use of linguistics as a forensic tool. For example, is it possible for linguists using speech or word patterns to identify speakers and authors? Can linguists help with assessing fraud or plagiarism or even the warnings in products' liability cases? What can the burgeoning field of forensic linguistics do to avoid the problems that have plagued more traditional forensic fields? My discussion with Rob tries to find out. Rob, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let me begin by asking you to give us a broad overview to the topic. What is forensic linguistics, and what are the kinds of legal contexts where the use of linguistics can be helpful to fact-finding and other types of decision-making?
1: Forensic linguistics is no more or less than the application of the very well-established academic and theoretical discipline of linguistics to issues dealing with the law whether it's statutory interpretation, contracts, criminal investigations that deal with tracing people through writing, interrogation and interview techniques, pattern jury instructions. When you think about it, there's very, very little in the law that is not language. Even if one is a chemical expert testifying about Some chemical analysis, the person is going to do it in language through English or whatever language is appropriate for that court. There's a very big world of language out there that currently is not typically analyzed by people whose very specialty and training is analysis of language. Lawyers, judges are, of course, excellent linguistic analysts, but they don't have the same toolkit as people with doctorates and 30 years experience in the analysis of meaning and linguistic pragmatics that's meaning in context or sociolinguistic variation or any of the other things like that.
0: How did you get started in the forensic part of the linguistics field? Was there a particular case that caused you to shift from what one might call traditional linguistics research to using it in the legal context?
1: Well, it sort of crept up on me. Over the years, every now and then, a lawyer would ask me if I might take a look at something in a law case, but I never thought of it as being forensic linguistics. I helped someone analyze an insurance contract. I'm trained at Columbia in theoretical semantics, which is, sounds a little more abstruse than it really is. It's, it's how do we actually communicate using these sounds and keyboards, as various uh, linguists have observed, There's nothing more unlike than sound and meaning. So how is it that sound (laughs) conveys meaning? It's very unobvious when you think of it. But let me come back to that in one sec because it's an interesting point, I think. So I did an insurance contract and I do this and I do that. And then I became aware of the work of Roger Shuy, S-H-U-Y, who is from, at that point, was at Georgetown University and really established forensic linguistics as a a standard application of linguistics in the United States. And uh, He wrote a book called Language Crimes, and then many, many other books, too. And I heard him lecture, and it got me thinking about how applicable theoretical linguistics was to very, very practical and very important issues of the law. The two cases, though, that I really can point to I was asked by the Pennsylvania State Police Major Crime Squad to look at two documents and tell them what could somebody know about the person or people who wrote these simply by a linguistic analysis. And that turned out to be involved with the murder of a woman. She had gotten these, or she had become aware of these stalker letters that had been sent to her husband, which threatened her. And then she was found strangled in her car outside a supermarket. And then as the investigation got going, a self-professed serial killer wrote to the police saying that he had actually been the one who had killed this woman. And I did an analysis with my old Columbia mentor, a guy named Benji Wald. And we analyzed it for possible common authorship, for dialect, for all of the information that we actually are encoding into language, even when we're not aware of it. So our education, our regional background, where we've lived, how old we are, all that kind of thing. And we found a rhetorical device that linked the two. And the judge gave the police the search warrant they were looking for. And. We went on and demonstrated that the superior hypothesis to explain the non-random distribution of these linguistic patterns was that it was unfortunately the husband of the murdered woman who had written both the stalker letter and the serial killer letter. And of course, it was other and forensic things that linked him to the crime. After that, I got picked up by the FBI and the Behavioral Analysis Unit of the FBI to help train their agents. And there was a forensic linguist there, uh, Jim Fitzgerald, who had worked on the Unabomber case and had demonstrated to the FBI the utility of forensic linguistics as an investigative device. And the other side of the coin in terms of prosecution versus defense, in any event, was I had an inmate in... Illinois reach out to me, and he had been directed to me by Professor Richard Leo of University of San Francisco Law School. He had been approached. He said, I was convicted 20 years ago of a murder, and the main piece of evidence was a confession that they claimed that I dictated. And what really happened was I was beaten I refused to confess. They gave me a piece of paper and said, if you want your telephone call, sign this paper. I signed the paper. And the next time I saw that paper, there was a typed confession over it that I did not write. And Professor Leo said, well, that's not the kind of false confession that I analyzed. That's something that Rob Leonard might analyze. And I talked to him, to the inmate and my students and I demonstrated that. It was not a very good hypothesis that we had contemporaneous writings uh, of—the guy's name is Antoine Cuby. We had contemporaneous writings of his, and they did not match in so many different ways to the confession. But we also had the testimony of one of the two detectives who interrogated him, and the patterns matched very, very well with the patterns of the detective.
0: Lots of really interesting examples. You've got forensic linguistics being used to interpret insurance policies, but also to hunt serial killers and potentially deal with a wrongful conviction. I think it's fair to say that one of the goals in your article was to encourage greater use of forensic linguistics in the legal system. So the question for you is where, by where I mean at what phases in the legal process or perhaps even other fields Where would you like to see greater use? Is it more use in hunting serial killers, or are there other places that we haven't thought of yet?
1: There are many places. As I was alluding to before, what in the law is not language? Because of my experiences with Antoine Cuby, because I thought that once we had demonstrated that, it was extremely unlikely that he had written his own confession. The doors of the jail would swing open. Now, this is five or six years ago. However, that did not happen, and there were problems with his appeals. So I went across the uh, quad to our Hofstra Law School to a professor named Eric Friedman, who is an expert in constitutional law, death penalty, and appeals. And essentially what he told me was, look, I know that you think this is likely something that should be brought to the attention of the court, but it seems that Mr. Cubias." expended all his appeals. Together, we got the idea of having a forensic linguistics innocence project, capital case primarily, where we would be able to reanalyze linguistic evidence that put people on death row. So we formed that, the two of us, and then we extended it to other serious crimes. And among the many things that we have done is we have helped to rewrite the jury pattern instructions for a state when people are found guilty of first-degree murder, whether the jury should put them to death or not, because the uh, assumption, according to case law and everything, should be that a life, but the way the pattern instructions were done, they assumed death. And we spent many months on that with the law school students and my forensic linguistics students. We also did a study of allocutions in death penalty cases So there are many, many avenues that are very, very interesting and I think very rewarding that linguistic science can really shed light on.
0: What do you see as the challenges toward greater acceptance of these techniques in legal cases? Is it just a matter of getting the word out, or are there specific institutional barriers that you see?
1: Frankly, I think it's just getting the word out. I used to go around with my FBI colleague, Fitzgerald, we would train vast <laughs> numbers of government agencies, secret service, park police, uh, capital police, you name it. And people would just be fascinated. They would just be astonished. Here was this new tool. Here is this new ability to gain intelligence from things that are lying around, all this language, it never occurred to them. I just gave a talk to a very large conference of fraud examiners explaining how forensic linguistics could be another very important tool in their investigations. For example, a will has been changed just before someone has passed away, and the email exchange that changes the will, they know there's something wrong with it, but they just don't know what it is. And this is a real case, of course. The forensic linguist was able to to show and demonstrate quite convincingly that what was wrong with it is that both sides of the conversation had been written by the same person. And that person was not the person who was deceased and it had been fraudulently uh, created. There are just so many different applications that people say, yeah, that's fabulous. Now, of course, you have to deal with Fry and Daubert and other standards, and we're doing that fairly well. More lately, I guess, because I've read in books from the early 2000s that that is a, a real problem, and of course, it's always a problem. But I myself have been admitted under Daubert and Fry many times in many different kinds of cases.
0: Let's turn to the Daubert issues. Forensic linguistics, of course, comes from an established academic discipline, but It strikes me that at the same time, a lot of the observations or arguments that I read from the use of forensic linguistics is not that fundamentally different from other forensic techniques. And those other techniques have been criticized for a variety of reasons. So, first question for you is what's the mark of good forensic linguistics? If I'm a judge and I'm trying to separate good analysis from not-so-good analysis, what kinds of markers should I be looking at?
1: Sure. And to frame that, people ask about what is the difference between forensic linguistics and traditional forensic fields, like handwriting or tool marks or things like that, that have been very sharply criticized. And one very, very big difference is that forensic linguistics is not a new field. It's a very old field, linguistics, and especially the types of theories and research that we're basing things on, especially something like variationist sociolinguistics, is based on 60 years and many more of evidence-based and fact-driven hypotheses and theory testing. We don't have that, as far as I know, with handwriting and tool marks. So there's no real way of comparing those two. I mean, the, the most basic linguistic variationist things are very, very clear. I mean, people have different languages. People, of course, how we define that exactly is is a matter of fluidity, but people have different dialects. So we can tell if somebody is writing in a Northern versus a Southern dialect. Of course, in forensic linguistics, we always have to wonder if the person is putting that on. And as it turns out, very often when people do put on, when they put on masquerades is what I call it. unless they're really excellent forensic linguistics, they're going to make a mistake. So if you want to dumb down, you better dumb down all your linguistic systems at the same time. A very famous case, somebody dumbed down the spelling but forgot to dumb down the punctuation and Roger Shire was able to know that the person was likely an educated person who was dumbing down his or her writing. So we have established linguistic principles, concepts that have been subject to decades and decades of evidence-based research, and that's what good forensic linguistics relies on. Also, forensic linguistic analyses should be totally and absolutely transparent. So anybody on the other side, say there's another linguist, can see exactly what I've done and can take the data and form competing hypotheses. See, the way I was trained to do linguistic science is quite different than the way traditional forensic examination is done. I was trained that scientists build competing hypotheses to explain the non-random distribution of the data. And that's what we actually do in all science. And we create hypotheses and we test them against the data, which is the superior hypothesis. And that's how I've always done this, rather than I am 76.3% sure that John Smith wrote this document. Indeed, forensic linguistics, while I'm on the specific person, can never identify a particular person. We can exclude people. For example, if I get something in Chinese and I don't speak Chinese, it's likely that I didn't write it, correct? But we narrow down the suspect pool and narrow down the suspect pool and narrow down the suspect pool. And then in court cases, the triers of fact have to look at means, motive, and opportunity and take all of the data, including, for example, my own and other forensic information, and then come to a conclusion about that. But just like DNA, as I'm sure you know, does not actually identify individual people, it can exclude people, we never can say it's a a particular person. And that would be another mark of good forensic linguistics that we don't identify a particular person. And the other thing that we do is, I do the analyses. I bring in people with other uh, areas of expertise. If I'm doing a case in Chinese or in a Japanese uh, and I don't know those languages, there are ways that we can operate. And also, we use a devil's advocate approach, a red team or whatever you want to call it, where potential questions are posed about my hypotheses, which I then attempt to provide answers to that support the hypothesis. So that's something that we typically try to do. Black box analyses are, of course, not good forensic linguistics or, I guess, any other kind of linguistics.
0: Is there any sort of testing or proficiency testing that's done among forensic linguists? So you take things that are real samples with people with a certain background, and then you have a bunch of people try to fake that, and then you test whether or not you're able to distinguish one from the other?
1: In the practical exercise of forensic linguistics, that's happened a lot. So we have found out, for example, that the person in that one case I told you about was indeed a highly educated person, and there were all sorts of other markers of that too. The computational linguists run contests. They'll they'll take a thousand authors and do a computational analysis according to whatever parameters they are finding interesting and useful, and then take a chapter of one of those authors and then see if students can match the author to the actual document. Those are really interesting experiments, but they don't mirror the normal kind of forensic linguistics, especially criminal investigations that we do. I was just asked about this on the stand the other day, as a matter of fact, quite a number of cases where I went against what the general opinion of everybody was and said that no this person didn't write x y and z or this other person well I don't say that in so many words but that's what it would have come down to in that case and then external evidence has shown that our methodology was correct somebody was uh, just arrested coming into the United States for the first time in 30 years, and I had demonstrated that it was likely person A. And then when person A did come in, there was all sorts of other forensic evidence that showed that it was indeed person A. In the John JonBenet Ramsey case, anyway, I can go on and on and on, unfortunately. But there have been numbers of cases where our techniques have proved to be valid in real-world situations, not ones where you need a thousand different authors, which is great, and you can do good statistical analyses of that and perhaps hone your techniques. But right there on the ground are our techniques, which are both qualitative and quantitative, have proved pretty valid.
0: Well, Rob, thanks so much for taking the time to introduce us to this world of forensic linguistics. It was great having you on the show.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. and I love your show.
0: Like any developed field of expertise, the field of forensic linguistics offers the legal system potentially powerful tools that can be used to improve fact-finding. But with great power comes great responsibility. About five years ago, I attended a conference hosted by Larry Solon at Brooklyn Law School on the use of linguistics for authorship identification. Larry's primary objective in that conference was to put forensic linguistics on sure scientific footing, especially in light of the problems found in the traditional forensic sciences, such as handwriting and tool marks. The problem is that while some experts worry a lot about the soundness of the underlying science, some don't. And the key is ensuring that the legal system is able to separate the two. In addition, we have issues of interpretation or application. I have little doubt that linguistic information can be extremely helpful to the fact-finding process. As Rob suggested, people have different language patterns, and we can use those language patterns to narrow the pool of suspects. But then the danger begins. Do jurors, or even linguists, have a sense of how rare these patterns happen to be? Do the experts interpret and present pattern matches appropriately? or do they overreach on their conclusions? And do we have a good sense of the experts' error rates? After all, regardless of how careful experts might be, they invariably make mistakes. As always, the devil is in the details. I enjoyed thinking about all the ways that linguistics can help solve mysteries, whether it be serial killers or will disputes or some kind of fraud. If forensic linguistics can avoid the pitfalls of the traditional forensic sciences as it develops, investigators will have a great new tool. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. That does it for this episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.